And now I'm honored to introduce to you Anthony Corona, one of this year's J.P. Morgan Chase Fellows, a new leader inside of the American Council of the Blind from Miami, Florida, to sing God Bless America. God bless America and that I love stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above from the mountains to the prairies to the oceans wide with Thank you so much, Anthony. And now I'd like to introduce our head table for this evening. So first, I'd like to introduce our immediate past president, Kim Charlson from Watertown, Massachusetts, and her husband, Brian. We have our second vice president, Ray Campbell from Glen Ellen, Illinois, and his lovely wife, Karen. Good evening, Ray. Good evening, Karen. And then on the other side of the podium, we have our ACB secretary, Denise Colley, and accompanying her is her lifelong friend and the chair of our voting task force for this year, Pat Sheehan from Silver Spring, Maryland. Denise is from Lacey, Washington. Sitting next to Pat and Denise are David and Rhonda Trott. David is our ACB treasurer from Talladega, Alabama. Sitting next to David and Rhonda is our ACB convention chair, Janet Dickelman for St. Paul, Minnesota. And accompanying her this evening is Rick Morin, our ACB media technical program director, and also the gentleman that helped us broadcast this week's activities from Boston Control Center at the Perkins Library. And Rick is from Wortham, Massachusetts. Sitting next to uh, Janet and Rick, our executive director, uh, Eric Bridges, and his lovely wife, Rebecca, from Alexandria, Virginia. And last but not least, because I've got to go home this evening, I'd love to introduce my lovely wife, Leslie Spoon, from Orlando, Florida, chair of the ACB Auction Committee. Woo, wasn't that a wonderful auction on Tuesday night? We had so much fun. And can we, you believe it raised over $42,000. Thanks to everybody for all their wonderful participation. I think it's been a wonderful convention. 
We're here to celebrate. I am so excited about us being able to have remote voting for the first time. Almost a thousand votes were registered in our last election. That is just so wonderful. So thank you all. Thank you for being patient. Thank you for working with us this week. And now it's my pleasure to introduce to you a colleague and a friend, Susan Glass, the chair of the Batty Committee, a subcommittee of the Audio Description Project. Batty stands for Audio, excuse me, Benefits of Audio Description in Education. And each year they host an ADP essay contest. And Susan is here to tell us about it in a little bit and, and then read the essay from the winning uh, contestant. So here's Susan from Saratoga, California. Susan, welcome. Oh, Dan, thank you so much. And hasn't this been a fabulous convention? I'm telling you, I mean, it's, I haven't wanted to sleep because there's been just too much good stuff going on. So I am just absolutely thrilled. Good evening, ACB. My name is Susan Glass, and since 2013, it's been my honor and privilege to chair ACB's Audio Description Project, Benefits of Audio Description in Education, BADI Subcommittee. Each year, ACB, ADP, and our partner, the Described and Captioned Media Program, or DCMP, co-sponsor the Beatty Contest in which blind and visually impaired young people ages 7 to 21 watch an audio-described film of their choice and then write a 300-word evaluation of the film's audio description. They share specific ways in which the audio description enhanced or detracted from their experience with the film. So they get experience as writers, as evaluators, as thinkers, even as critics. Members of the Beatty Committee read all contest entries and then choose first, second, and third place winners in four student age categories. The grand prize winner receives an iPad mini and an invitation to read his, her essay at either ACB's legislative mid-year meetings or the national conference and convention. Now, this year, our winner was not able to do that. So momentarily, I'm going to read his essay to you. But before I tell you who he is, I want to pause a minute and thank this marvelous committee. These individuals give of their intelligence, their passion, their warmth, and their eagerness to nourish young people of the future. And uh, they kind of prepare the, the generation to follow next generation, because when they read these essays, they're very interested to see who the kids are and what they're thinking about. And, and, and those kids are growing up participating in our media culture. But you know, without the hard work of my colleagues on this committee, that joy and that annual process would not be possible. So at this time, I'd like to thank Joel Snyder, Senior Consultant for ACB's Audio Description Project, Jason Stark, CEO of the Described and Caption Media Program, Scott McCallum, who is Superintendent of the School for the Blind in Washington State, and then our own wonderful ACB members, Sheila Young, Leslie Spoon, Donna Brown, and Margie Donovan. Everybody here, you are just so special to me. It is such an honor to work with you year after year. Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. 
This year's grand prize winner is Mr. Bennett Lehman from Jefferson, Wisconsin. He watched and evaluated a video that is uh, prepared by and narrated by describers from DCMP, and it's called Science Nations Virtual Reality Fires, Episode 201. And we on the Beatty team are so proud of Bennett for what he's written here. So here is his essay. Congratulations, Bennett Lehman. Bennett writes, Science Nations Virtual Reality Fires, Episode 201. This episode of Science Nation was about how a university is using virtual reality to show how dangerous wildfires can be. I watched this episode in audio description, and I particularly enjoyed the announcing of names whenever someone was talking. It definitely helped me keep better track of the episode and allowed me to enjoy it more. I also liked that the describer changed to only saying the speaker's last names after they'd been introduced and I'd gotten to know their voices. I didn't find the description intrusive or interruptive to the contents itself and found it good. The audio quality of the description itself was also amazing. I didn't hear any static or background noise And the describers themselves were very professional with an even tone of voice. However, a little more detail on the virtual fires description and how similar it is to the real life example shown before it would have been nice. So there you have Mr. Lehman's essay. What an interesting young man. I'm sure we're going to hear from him again. And he is our grand prize winner this year. So let's hear it for Bennett Lehman. Thank you so much. Congratulations, Bennett, and thank you, Susan, for that wonderful reading, and thank you for all you do as the chair of the Batty Contest Subcommittee. Next, we would like to introduce Penny Reader from Montgomery Village, Maryland. Penny is on the Board of Publications as a BOP director, and she is going to Uh, share with us the BOP award recipients for 2021. So hello, ACB. I'm here to present the Ned E. Freeman Award, and I'm a member of the Board of Publications. There were several nominees for this award this year, and the winner is Nick Judici. Judici? I'm sorry, Nick. Nick Nick and I know each other. And, uh, and I know Nick's sister, too. And they pronounce their names in different ways. <laughs> so, Nick, I want to congratulate you for winning the Freeman Award. The Freeman Award is an award given for excellent writing, which we are celebrating, for an article which appeared in the Braille Forum. And actually, your article appeared in several publications in addition to the Braille Forum. I know it was in Paul's um, for uh, GDY News You Can Use, which is the newsletter of Guide Dog Users Incorporated, and it was also published online so that lots and lots of people, including people who are not blind, read it. And that's a good thing because what the article did was it explained to people who can see how difficult it was for us during the pandemic not to be able to uh, obtain information with touch and also to maintain social distance from other people. And you did a great job and you really 
allowed a lot of people to be empathetic and to understand where we were coming from. And you allowed many blind people to say, oh, yeah, you get it. So um, we are delighted to award you with the Freeman Award. It's given only when there's an article that is really deserving and yours is exceptionally so. So congratulations, Nick. Uh, Since we are at a virtual convention, I can't hand you the award, but you will be receiving it in the mail. And uh, thank you so much for writing such a great piece. We appreciate it. Well, Penny, thank you. And thank you to ACB for for, uh, your appreciation and recognition of of that piece. So it was something that you wrote uh, almost almost a year ago, I guess. And, uh, you know, a lot of it's still true, but a lot of it fortunately is changing. I, I ended up um, well, when I wrote that, I realized, as you mentioned, like just how much touch is important and when it's taken away, how challenging it is uh, if you don't see. Uh, but yesterday I shook someone's hand and it was just like, wow, <laughs> I'm shaking someone's feeling. hand. It's just, it's just funny feeling. Like I, initially, I almost took my hand back and then they kind of grabbed on and we were just kind of both smiled. And, yeah, and I just realized, wow. So, yeah, thank you. I really, I really appreciate it. And um I, I look forward to when we will meet non-virtually. Me too. Maybe next summer. <laughs> um, so congratulations, Nick. We're really pleased that you won. Thanks. I'm Penny Reader. I'm a member of the ACB Board of Publications, and I am lucky enough to be able to award the um, Hollis Liggett Award to Sally Benjamin who is the editor of the newsletter from the Florida Council of the Blind. The newsletter is called the White Cane Bulletin. Uh, There were uh, several nominations for this award, Sally, and your publication fits all the criteria. It comes out several times a year, and it's excellent. You know, Hollis Liggett, this award is named after Hollis Liggett, and he was the editor of the Braille Free Press, which was the first publication of ACB. And he understood that uh, in order for an organization to succeed, members have to be informed and members of the general public have to be informed so that they know what we do and who we are and why blind people might want to join. And your publication does exactly that for the state of Florida and the Florida affiliate. So I want to congratulate you. I wish I could hand you the award because uh, it would be nice to be there in person. Uh, But this is a virtual convention, so your award is going to be coming in the mail. But congratulations. We're really pleased that your uh, affiliate and your newsletter won. You do a great job. Well, thank you so much um, to ACB for this award. I'm actually pretty astounded. Um, Our newsletter is something that I've worked on a couple of times I I didn't do it for a while and then I did and then I was off for a while and now I'm doing it again and it is very important to me to get news out to people um, whether it be blind people sighted people whoever might be interested Um, and it's I just think it's one of the more important things we do in Florida. Um, I agree. It's one of the more important things we do in ACB as a member of the BOP. That's why I'm there. And and people, you know, sometimes they don't always read all the articles, but that's their choice. But um, we try to pick articles that are going to be interesting and um, informative and 
this next issue that's about to come out again has some interesting articles in it also, which um, I was really glad. But I, I just, um, I just so, so appreciate it. I, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> just ecstatic. Thank you for doing such a great job. And, you know, when I called Sheila Young, who's the president of FCB, to tell her that your newsletter had won, she was so excited. She could hardly even talk. And then she started crying. And so uh, that was really fun. And it was so fun to get connected with you again, too. So thank you for doing such a great job. You're welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Penny, for those wonderful presentations, and congratulations to all of our winners. Next, I would like to introduce Debbie Rozier from Allentown, Pennsylvania, who will be presenting our ACB Award winners for Lifetimes of Achievement in Service for our organization. So here is Debbie, chair, co-chair of our ACB Awards Committee. It's so exciting uh, to see see the work that Debbie and her co-chair, Deb Trevino, have done this year to pull together these wonderful ACB Award winners. And it's so special to see, you know, really the lifetime commitment uh, when you see the presentations for these individuals this evening, I don't want to, I don't want to break the surprise, but these are the individuals who have really dedicated years of service to our organization. And, you know, I really want to encourage people that out, if you have an individual in your affiliate, in your chapter that works on your committee that you believe has demonstrated that the characteristics that qualify for one of these national awards, please consider nominating them next year. Uh, We've had wonderful nominations this year, but with all the energy inside the American Council of Blind and and the, and the wonderful leaders that we have inside this organization, I know there are just so many more valuable and deserving candidates out there. So please, Take a look at our ACB awards and feel free to, you know, nominate that person. Don't be shy. You don't have to be a perfect literary critic or, or that type of thing. Just get the words down, get the application turned in, and you can honor a person that has meant so much to our organization. The Affiliate Outreach Award. In 2015, the Friends and focus chapter of the American Council of the Blind of Ohio began finding used CCTVs, making sure they were in working order and placing the CCTVs with people who needed the equipment. The CCTVs helped people with low vision remain more independent. Over time, the program has expanded across the state of Ohio. To date, there have been more than 60 CCTVs placed. The award reads, the Affiliate Outreach Award presented to the Friends and Focus chapter Medina, Ohio, 
for their over 60 collections and distributions of CCTVs to Ohioans with low vision. Hi, my name is Don Kelman, and I'm with the uh, American Council of Blind, and we have a chapter in Medina, Ohio, and it's called Friends in Focus. So in, uh, I think, I believe it was 2015. Oh, anyway, I'm I'm the president and the treasurer. Okay. So uh, in 2015, I thought it would be a good idea to start a program to collect used CCTVs so we can donate to people at no cost. Okay. So I started this program and it was, it's really something that we, we got a whole bunch of them donated. So it's been going on for like six years and we've donated 58 of them out already. So I, I got one donated to us a couple of days ago and, and I'm expecting another one today. And uh, so we'll just have to see how it goes. And uh, the more people we can help be independent, the better it is. And I, I'm really enjoying this uh, chapter and I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the American Council of the Blind. It's a wonderful organization to be member of and hopefully years to come i'll be a long time member so and then plus uh, i ordered uh, a couple of little rubies from freedom scientific and we also donate them to our members okay so with uh, they can keep them for three months if they so desire and then uh, they turn them in and then somebody else can take it like that. So that, that's, that's a little program that I started and we have two rubies that we do that with. So it's, it's, everything's working out really good. I'm proud of our, I'm proud of our uh, chapter. I really am. In February of 2016, Crystal Bridges Museum was contacted by the Arkansas Council of the Blind there were no programs or materials for people with vision loss. Now, with collaboration with the Arkansas Council of the Blind, there are multi-sensory, multi-sensory tours and programs. Um, the award reads the James R. Olson Distinguished Service Award presented to Kim Crowell of the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in recognition of her leadership in making the in making the museum a model of accessibility for all disabilities. My name is Kim Crowell, and I am the Access and Inclusive Programs Manager at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville, Arkansas. On behalf of the Crystal Bridges team, we thank you so much for this generous award. In keeping with our mission to welcome all, we constantly work towards creating a more inclusive environment across all aspects of museum work with the help of the members of our Community Access Advisory Committee, which is made up of individuals with and without disabilities who are advocates for inclusion in Northwest Arkansas. 
We sincerely thank our committee members, Rita Reese Whiting and Rachel Ames for nominating us and for our sponsors, Lorraine Arbus and Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield for their ongoing support of our programs at the museum. Thank you. This is a presentation for the Dur Durward K. McDaniels Award. The presentation is for the Durward K. McDaniels Award. This, this person is the definition of volunteerism. This person is soft-spoken and makes this, makes this world a better place for us all. This person is involved in many different organizations volunteering in the community for all types of agencies, organizations, uh, nonprofits, and service providers dedicated to raising funds for ACB. He has been the leading salesperson for the ACB Braille Forum raffle tickets for many years, thus earning the nickname Raffle Man. The Derwood K. McDaniels Award is presented to a very deserving person. This evening, I would like to congratulate Alan Peterson. And the plaque reads, the Derwood K. McDaniels at Ambassador Award presented to Alan Peterson in recognition of his many years of service to ACB and numerous other community organizations. This award is such an awesome surprise. I thank ACB for this recognition. I am honored and humbled to receive this recognition, knowing that there are so many people that are deserving of this uh, kind of award. This award is particularly meaningful to me in that it is in memory of uh, Derwood McDaniel. I never had the chance to meet Derwood McDaniel personally, but I am acquainted with his work, having read People of Vision, the History of the American Council of the Blind. I want to thank the selection committee for their consideration of my nomination. Um, and I want to thank Zelda Gebhardt for uh, making that nomination of me. And I am very passionate about the work that I do for the American Council of the Blind and for the work that I do for my state affiliate, North Dakota Association of the Blind. I want to thank uh, my friends and family, uh, my wife, Judy, who uh, we will be uh, observing our 50th wedding anniversary here on July 24th. Uh, as the Beatles sang in their song, um, I get by with a little help from my friends, and I can relate. 
to that song. Actually, I get by with a lot of help from my friends and family. I am uh, looking forward to uh, the banquet speaker this evening, Peter Sagal, uh, the, the program, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Uh, it is one of the one of my favorites on National Public Radio. Again, thank you, thank you so much, ACB, for this recognition. I appreciate it greatly. Congratulations to all our winners, and a special shout out to Alan Peterson, friend and colleague. When I joined the board of directors, Alan Peterson Peterson was there to guide and mentor me. But he still drinks those IPA beers, which I just don't know if that's my my ticket. But Alan, I'll have a six pack of it waiting for you in Nebraska with a with a sleeve of brownies. You can count on it. And Alan Peterson, you are a wonderful, wonderful man, and you have given so much to the American Council of the Blind. Hip hip, hooray, Alan Peterson, you're the best. And. Raffle man, I got to tell you, I just heard a little birdie in my ear, Nancy Becker, who told me there's only one raffle ticket left. So there's only one more chance to win. So the first person that calls the Minnesota office will have a chance to win. Thanks to all and, the wonderful work of the raffle man. Yes, Nancy. Yes. It has been sold. Oh, we are sold out of Braille Form raffle tickets. Congratulations to all of our ACB members for participating in the raffle. And Alan, once again, congratulations on receiving the Derwood K. McDaniel Ambassador Award. And congratulations to our other winners. And Debbie, thank you for the wonderful presentation. Now it's time for us to relax. Go get that second adult beverage for Alan Peterson. I know it'll be his favorite IPA. And it's time for, we are in for a treat, folks. I would like to introduce to you Peter Sagal, host of the NPR Peabody award-winning radio show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It is broadcast on WBEZ from Chicago, Illinois. Peter is also a one a, a, a avid long distance runner and has written a book, The Incomplete Guide to Running. In that book, Peter highlights his experiences in 2013 when he was a guide for a blind runner at the Boston Marathon and experienced the Boston Marathon bombing. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and get ready to enjoy a wonderful presentation from our friend and colleague, Peter Sagal. Welcome, Peter. Well, thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, I, I'm here because of my involvement with the uh, blind and visually impaired community, specifically the blind and visually impaired athletic community, which happened, I should say, entirely by accident. Um, it was a twist of fate. Uh, I have at this point told the story many times of how I happened to be a hundred yards away from the explosion, the bombing at the very end of the Boston Marathon in 2013. Uh, that was an interesting thing. Uh, I've witnessed three historical events in my life. One was the uh, LA riots where I was living at the time. The second was the bombing, but the third was the 
2011 White House Correspondents' Dinner when President Obama made fun of Donald Trump. At any rate, we don't know which of these events caused the most, shall we say, chaos. But what I want to talk about briefly right now is not so much about the bombing, uh, which came at the end of a very interesting day, but how I came to be there. Because, of course, as I have often mentioned when I tell this story, I wasn't there by myself. I was there next to a visually impaired runner named William Greer. And how I happened to be standing next to William Greer after running uh, a marathon with him is, well, sort of why I'm here. In the fall of 2012, I had arrived at a place in my own running career where I really didn't know what to do next. I had become an avid long-distance runner and marathoner. Uh, in the classic midlife crisis way, my, my joke is, is that I realized I was about to turn 40 and that meant that I would someday die. And I figured out quite cleverly that if I ran a marathon, which I had never done before, I wouldn't die. It's worked so far. But after spending five or six years pursuing that goal rather avidly and somewhat successfully for a man my age and with my physique, I was kind of out of motivation. Uh, running is a very solipsistic kind of thing. You do it for yourself. Um, you do it uh, to improve yourself. You do it to lose weight. You do it to keep yourself sane when things are becoming stressful. And that was certainly my case. But does it really help anybody else? I mean, we all have limited time in this earth. And should we only be doing things that benefit ourselves? And I was idly thinking about that. And I stress, I did not like go out and like search opportunities to be of service. One showed up on my lap when a gentleman named Josh Warren, who at the time was in charge of Team with a Vision for the Massachusetts Association of the Blind and Visually Impaired, just called me out of the blue. He knew I was a long distance runner. I wrote about it for Runner's World and said, hey, how'd you like to guide, guide a blind runner uh, at the Boston Marathon this year, 2013? And I'm like, sure, Sounds like fun. It actually, it sounded more like fun. It sounded more than fun. It sounded intriguing. It sounded challenging. It sounded like something I had never done before, which of course it was. But it also, as I said, seemed like a chance to be of service. You know, if running for my own sake seemed somewhat pointless at that point, running for somebody else sounded like a pretty great idea. The somebody else was, as I've mentioned, William Greer. William Greer is an amazing guy and one of my uh, heroes. Uh, he is about my age, put him in his uh, early to mid fifties. Now he is a resident of Austin, Texas and a native of Texas who, when he was about 17 years old, uh, was in a terrible accident. I think he was hit by a car while riding a bike and hit the pavement hard at the back of his head and ended up scrambling his visual cortex. So he has that variety of blindness. His eyes work fine, but the visual processing doesn't work so well. And despite that, he had achieved a really remarkable, um, amount in terms of his athletic career. He had run marathons. He's subsequently become a, a quite an accomplished ultra runner running 50 to 100 miles at a time. But that was his first Boston. He had qualified uh, in the visually impaired category at a prior marathon, was very excited. For those of you who don't know, the Boston Marathon has a special place in the long distance running community. It is the oldest marathon in America going back to the late 19th century. It is also one that because of its relatively limited size, relatively, has always, well, limited the amount of runners who can participate. In order to run Boston, you have to qualify by running a certain time at a prior marathon. So for people like me, people who would never hope to being in any kind of like track team or any sort of official competition, we would never hope. The Boston Marathon is kind of like 
every amateur runner's Olympics. To qualify for Boston, to run a BQ is a big deal. Uh, and William had done it, was going to come to Boston, this sort of central event of the American running calendar. And he wanted to make sure that he didn't run into difficulty or, well, fall over. Uh, William, of course, because of his visual limitations, has problems seeing things in the pavement that he might trip over. He also has a problem with crowds. He's afraid of running into people. So my job, as was explained to me by William the day before the marathon, was to keep that from happening. Now, in the course of that day, I met a a really amazing group of people, um, specifically the visually impaired runners and their guides. Um, the runners, of course, came in every variety. There were elite athletes there um, who expected to win the visually impaired division uh, in the competition that day, to actually go home with a trophy, which is so far beyond my experience at marathons that I was just in awe. In fact, there was one runner there, and I wish I could remember her name because she's quite well known in the community, who was so fast that they couldn't find one person to guide her. There just simply wasn't, a, there wasn't one athlete, visual athlete, they could, I mean, I mean, a seeing athlete who they could find to run the entire distance with her at her pace. So what they had to do was they had to find a bunch of different guides who would pick her up, run at her pace for the entire marathon for only like 10 kilometers, as much as they could manage, and then hand her off to the next runner. And she actually was so fast, her first guide couldn't keep up with her. And the story is, is that he gave up after about like five of the six miles that he was supposed to run with her, that first stage. And he just like collapsed and she just said, okay. And she just kept running along yelling, I'm blind, I'm blind. So that people would know to get out of her way until she found her next guy. That's the level of athletes that some of them were. The others were just mooks like me, middle-aged people, young people, older people who had come to Boston to run it who had the same ambition that I did, that this was an achievement that you could, you know, really look back on and, and could cap uh, or, or mark a career as an amateur runner. Um, and they, you know, wanted the same things that we did. They wanted to have a good day. They wanted to run a good time, you know, to be able to look back on it and say they did their best. A lot of times people ask me like, well, what is, what are blind people like? And I'm like, well, they're like everybody else, except they have problems seeing. I mean, also, of course, I was exposed that day to uh, an amazing group of people because these are people who, as hard as marathoning is for people like me, it's even harder for them. Uh, and they did not let those obstacles um, get in their way. They said, OK, I can't see. I want to run a marathon. How can I do it anyway? Um, many of them uh, had arranged their own guides in their running careers. But of course, on that day, they had come to Team with a Vision, which helped them out. And there were also a lot of people, I should say, who were there not as guides, but were there to raise money by running a marathon for the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired, which is a great thing to do. Um, I think that there's a bias uh, in running circles against charity runners because they're perceived as being less, I don't know, devoted somehow or pure in their motivations than we other runners, and particularly because you see, at Boston, you don't have to qualify. You can promise to raise a certain amount of money and you get a bid. And those of us who qualified can get snooty about it. But that day, and among many other days, I began to realize that the people who were doing it to raise money for good causes like that are really far more heroic than uh, the rest of us spandex warriors.
And maybe the best thing about that day, we know what the worst thing was about that day, which was the bombing. But the best thing about that day was spending four hours with William running along. Um, I think it's a mistake to ascribe to anybody a particular kind of virtue, either because of or despite of their disability. Um, I think that's condescending, um, patronizing. So I won't say, wow, I learned that through William Greer, that blind people are great. I learned that William Greer is great and that his visual impairment is just another aspect of his personality, no more or less important to who he is than my lack of hair is to me. Um, and so it was a great day because I, I got to make a lifelong friend. And, I, and maybe going back in my word a little bit. Uh, I came to admire him not only for his qualities, which are immense and varied, but because, as I said, he had goals. Uh, He wanted to be a successful long-distance runner for the same reasons I did. He had an additional obstacle, which I got to say, in my case, would have stopped me in my tracks because I'm just not that resilient. But in his case, he was like, all right, I got a problem. I can't see very well. How do I solve that? And he did. I was part of the solution that day. Uh, and then we finished and the bombs went off and that's a whole other story. Um, and because of that experience, I ended up guiding a couple more times, three more times, blind runners, twice at Boston, once in New York. And it's been a, it's been a really positive experience for me um, because it turns out that, yes, running is like a lot of other things, something people do for themselves. And most of my friends are like that. We run, we, 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 we worry about our, our fitness, we worry about our health, we worry about our times, we worry about our training. And it turns out there's a whole other universe of athletes, people involved with um, Team with a Vision in Massachusetts, people involved with the Achilles Track Club, uh, all kinds of people who are there to make sure that the community of people who are visually impaired or have other disabilities are able to participate in this as well. And, you know, I'll finish with this. It's a challenging time sometimes, especially when you read the news all day, which is what my job is. And the problems that we're all facing seem very, very large. Um, they're systemic, maybe because of that insoluble. You know, you look at, say, oh, God, global warming. What are we going to do about that? And certainly there are people who are devoting their time to trying to turn those aircraft carriers uh, and keep these disasters, these systemic large problems from getting any worse. But I have found that the things that actually make me feel better personally is to get involved with efforts to help people on an individual basis. It is absolutely true that helping one visually impaired runner complete a marathon is not going to change the world. Um, but what I have found is doing the work like that is really good for the soul. Um, we human beings sometimes forget this in our silos of information, especially this last year when we've all been locked inside, hopefully that's coming to an end, but we thrive most when we help other people. And when we do that of those things that help us, the things that help us most, the things that make us feel better, feel connected, feel I don't know, human, or when we do it individually, one-on-one, when we reach out a hand or take hold of a tether and just help somebody else do what they want to do that day. And that's a lesson that I've carried forward and I try to keep doing, even though it's been a while since I've been able to guide a blind runner. I hope to do it again. So it's a pleasure to help if that's what I'm doing. I hope I am by appearing with you guys today.
Well, Peter, thank you so much for those wonderful thoughts. And it reminded me as you, as you spoke that we in the American Council of Blind have partnerships with both Achilles and with America Walks. And we have a kinship there in our community. We're by definition, folks who are pedestrians, we walk a lot. And I think we have some of the same obstacles as, as runners and, and cyclists and, and, and other walkers. And so, um, again, thank you for your service. And, uh, and we welcome the, the comments. And next, I want to introduce to you our immediate past president, Kim Charlson from Watertown, Massachusetts, who uh, would like to ask you a question. Sure, absolutely. Well, I could ask you a question about Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is um, a show that I have been a fan of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me for many years. And um, you have an amazing range of guests on the show over the years, from Martha Stewart to Senator Jeff Flake. Yes. And of, <laughs> of all those guests, can you recall a time when something they said totally flabbergasted you and they went completely off script, taking the show, you know, in a, in a totally crazy, funny direction that you were just not expecting. Uh, you know, one of the things I like to, I like to think about our show, specifically our interviews is, um, you know, the people we interview tend to be people who have been interviewed a lot. And if you're interviewed a lot, uh, you tend to sort of fall into the same routines. You answer the same questions. And what I love to do is I love to sort of give them a break, not just so much our audience, but them. Like, is there something else you want to talk about? So, I mean, very early on, for example, we were talking to Madeleine Albright, the former Secretary of State. And instead of asking her about um, international relations, we asked her about her weightlifting routine, which was somewhat legendary in Washington circles at the time. And I remember asking her if it was true that she could press like 150 pounds with her legs. And she said, yes, it's absolutely great for kicking ass, which is not something I ever expected Madeleine Albright to say. And, and, you know, we've had these adventures. I have to say, maybe it's because of the people we, we choose that nothing has ever like completely gone off the rails in a way that we couldn't say, but wonderful things have happened. So, for, I mean, here's a, here's a lovely example, and it may not be the kind of disaster that makes for a great story, but it's absolutely true. We were interviewing Dick Van Dyke, and I one of the nice things about my job is that I get to, and I've been able to interview people who I was very admiring of as a child. That, sadly, is coming to an end for obvious reasons, but there was a period where I got to interview all these people who I grew up loving, and it turns out they're just as lovely as you would always hope they would be. Dick Van Dyke, obviously one of them. And at one point in the interview, um, Mo Rocca asked Dick Van Dyke about the lyrics to the theme from the Dick Van Dyke show. You know, ba-ba-da, 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 ba-da, 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 bum, bum. And Dick Van Dyke said, yes, there are lyrics, and sang them, which I won't do for you now. And it turns out that is the first time ever that Dick Van Dyke had ever sung the lyrics to the theme of his own TV show. 50 years later, he finally did it, and he did it on our show. And that's the sort of thing that I kind of love. I wish, I know everybody wants to say, oh, did everything fall apart? It was crazy, and they started swearing. Um, that hasn't happened yet, but we've had an awful lot of fun and sometimes a lot of surprises. 
Next, Peter, we're going to hear from Peggy Garrett from Missouri City, Texas, who's the president of ACB of Texas and our retiring chair of our Multicultural Affairs Committee. So, Peggy? It is an absolute pleasure to have this opportunity to speak with you this morning. Uh, A few years ago, uh, a show was recorded here in the Houston area, and my husband and I had the opportunity to be a part of that, and that was a lot of fun. Well, that's great. Yeah, we loved it going to Houston. It was really fun. Who, do you remember who our guest was that time? You know, I honestly don't. Uh, it was, it's been quite a few years ago. I just know it was a lot of fun when we when we attended the show. Yes, we, we had a lot <laughs> of fun barbecue and Vietnamese food, as I remember. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Peter, I know you've done hundreds of shows, and I know some of them have, there's something that stands out in your mind as maybe a favorite show or a favorite uh, uh, candidate, someone who was there. Share with us one of, the, one of those moments that was a specific moment or a specific show that's a favorite to you. Well, it's hard to say because actually, and, and I say this not so much to brag, but just to, to kind of marvel at how strange it seems. We've done more than a thousand shows. We've, nice. done, we've done at this point something like close to 1,100 radio shows. Mm-hmm. If, we're not, if we're not quite at 1,100, we sell, we did our thousandth in the fall of 2019. So add another, you know, add another 50 or so, and we're getting there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 you know that's amazing. And of those shows, I mean, there there are there are so many moments. It's hard to. It's hard to pick one. For example, uh, we did a show at the um, Millennium Park here in Chicago, this beautiful outdoor venue. Um, and our guest for the show was Patrick Fitzgerald, who had been, and this is now, I guess, history, had been the prosecutor who had prosecuted Scooter Libby for um, his role in the Valerie Plame scandal. This is a few scandals ago. People may not remember and what had happened was Mr. Fitzgerald had gotten a conviction of Mr. Libby, and then that conviction or his sentence was commuted by the president. And everybody wanted to interview Patrick Fitzgerald about this, and uh, Patrick Fitzgerald wouldn't talk to anybody but us. So I interviewed this major figure in that day's news in front of something like 10,000 people with the national media all looking on. I looked out over the audience, which was enormous, of course, at this outdoor venue, mm-hmm. a whole row of like television cameras as mm-hmm. if we were actually about to make news. That was pretty crazy. Um, I've gotten to play places like Carnegie Hall. I have performed, performed at Red Rocks, one of the greatest mm-hmm. musical venues in the world. I've been what? at the San Francisco Opera House. Um, it, it's the Greek theater in LA. It's, it's, the, the, every time one of these things happens, every time we get up to go out and do one of these shows at these one of these amazing venues, uh, I, I I just can't believe it. I honestly think one of these days I will wake up, uh, and it's <laughs> all turned out to be a strange dream. And I'll look around and I'll really be like the accountant or tax lawyer I was supposed to have been. Uh, but until that happens, I have to say I'm really enjoying it. Next, Peter, we want uh, to hear a question from Judy Dixon, who's been a longtime member of the American Council of the Blind, and she's celebrating 40 years of service with the National uh, Library of Congress and NLS and the Braille and Talking Book Library, and she's a huge fan. So, Judy? Thank you, Dan. 
Good evening, Peter. It's wonderful to have a chance to meet you, even if it's virtually. And living in Arlington, Virginia, as I do, I am near Wolf Trap. Oh, yeah. Another one of our favorite venues that I never thought I would ever play. I have seen you there four times. Wow. And in 2019, it was two nights in a row. <laughs> really? You are a fan. <laughs> I, I said to my husband, you might think this is crazy, but I'm really inclined to buy tickets for both nights. He said, go ahead, let's do it. I, so as I will ever get to a groupie and I'm very flat. It, it was, it was, it was great. And, and the nights were so different. So many people have asked me, well, were they similar? No, they were completely different. It was like seeing it two different years. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. So it's really wonderful. I have a pretty mundane question sure. uh, about the contestants, the people who call in to play the show. Yes. Do they get to choose which segment they want to be in? Here's the funny thing. I don't know. <laughs> and the reason I don't know is because all these years that we've been doing it, that work has been handled by one of our producers. It's been done for the last decade by Miles Sternboss, um, who's one of our producers. And among his many duties is to recruit listeners from the show. People call in. We get, I, I'm not even sure, maybe 50 to 100 calls a week from people who want to play. He and our intern will go through them. They'll select people who sound wonderful and charming, fun to talk to, not crazy. Um, and they'll call them back. And I, I, I'm not quite sure. I think they do get to ask their preference. I think the system is we will ask their preference, but we won't necessarily honor it. That oh, makes sense. You'd like, you'd like to play Not My Job at the top of the <laughs> You'd like to play Who's Bill? Well, that's filled. What would you think of this? I think, I think that's how it works, but I can't be certain. Because, of course, when you hear me talk to them, like, hi, wait, wait, don't tell me. That's the first day I've ever spoken to them. So I have no idea what their preference is. But I can tell you that given the quality of the people who call in, who I do get to talk to, our producers do a heck of a job. They all sound terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Judy. Uh, next, uh, Peter, we had a contest. Uh, you, you know, ACB, you got to have a contest. So we had people write in on our leadership and community uh, conversation list and submit questions. And this next question was from our, our winner who, uh, who submitted her own personal question for you, Peter. And it's Ann Moreau from Lake Worth, Florida. No, and no. yes, yeah, so here's her question. So. I'm a big fan of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Where did the idea for the show come from? That's a really good question. And I wish I could give you a better answer than the real one. Like something like, well, I invented it. I, I created my own major at Harvard in quiz show studies. And I came up with the idea. And I, you know, I started it doing it in my living room. And they grew a fan base. And no, not, nothing like that. Um, the story is a little mundane, but successful, I hope. So it has a happy ending. Um, NPR listeners tend to turn the radio on in the morning as of a Monday morning to listen to morning edition. And then they listen to fresh air and then they listen to all things considered. And they do that Monday through Friday. And then the pattern was they'd wake up on Saturday morning, listen to car talk and then Scott Simon, and then they would go away for the rest of the weekend. And stations around the country were frustrated because they wanted people to keep listening during the weekend, but they could never find the right show to keep them listening. And somebody at NPR came up with the idea, like, you know, well, people don't want more news shows. There's plenty of news in the weekend. Maybe a quiz about the week's news. 
That was the gestation of the idea. And then they hired Doug Berman, who had been the creator and producer of Car Talk, to come in and oversee it. So Doug Berman, working with NPR, basically built this show in the course. It was during the mid-90s. I think they started the process around 95, 96. Uh, They tried it in a bunch of different iterations. Um, And eventually they settled on a model of the show that was in a studio with a host based uh, in the central place and everybody else participating via, well, sort of like we're doing now remotely. Um, And I was somehow found by this nationwide casting effort to be one of the panelists. I was a writer living in Brooklyn, New York at the time. And I got a call from a friend who knew somebody who knew somebody. And I got sort of swept up and auditioned and was cast as one of the panelists on the very first editions or episodes of the show which were, and I think I can say in the distance of 23 years, pretty bad. I had a lot of problems, shall we say. And Doug Berman and the other producers at the time decided that the first problem they needed to fix was to change hosts. And I guess they were desperate because they decided to give me a chance. Apparently they thought I was somewhat host-like and they gave me the job and I became the host in May of 1998 and I've been doing it ever since. Do you have do you have a feeling of how long you're gonna gonna keep going? Well, uh, one of the great things about public radio is that it's very very hard to get a, have a hit show. Uh, mm. It's change comes change comes slowly to public radio. But the good thing is that you basically it's like uh, the way I put it is like it's like being the pope. It's a very hard job to get, but a very hard job to lose. <laughs> Uh, and the, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, if I could think of a better job, if I could think of a job that allowed me to entertain, be funny, put on shows every week with such an amazing group of people, by which I mean both my colleagues on the staff of Wait, Wait, and the panelists and the cast, and talk to amazing, interesting artists, politicians, writers, thinkers, engineers, astronauts, scientists, etc., on a weekly basis, I would go do that job. But apparently... This is the only one that allows me to do all those things and get paid for it. So I probably will do this job until they drag me out, uh, either in cuffs or feet first. Fantastic. Last, Peter, we want to hear from Janet Dickelman, our convention uh, committee chair. And she's gathered a couple of other questions from our members and friends. And uh, Janet, we'd love to hear from some, some of our other ACB family. All right. Good evening, Peter. Thanks so much for being here. I have to say that even though there's podcasts available at our house at 1 p.m. in St. Paul, Minnesota, wait, wait, don't tell me it's always on NPR Live. And if we miss it, then we have to catch it on uh, Sunday afternoon. So thank you. One of the fun things about our show is, as you say, even with all these podcasts and everything, people still like to gather around the radio tradition. I mean, it's like, I don't know, like Trevor McGee and Molly 80 years ago. Mm -hmm. People like to make it a tradition, especially in families. That makes me happy. Well, we're doing it here in St. Paul, Minnesota at the Dickelman House. Um, My first question is from Linda Hunt from Albany, Albany, New York. And she wants to know, have you ever had any incidents on Wait, Wait involving blind guests? contestants or imperfect guide dogs in the audience? Uh, I'm sure we've had blind uh, contestants because uh, 
people call in, you know, and that, and, and I, and our show, of course, like a lot of radio shows is very popular with the blind because there's no visual element. I know this for a fact because a lot of people come up to me after the show. I mean, there are a lot of people who are obviously visually impaired and they often come up to me and they say how much they enjoy the show. And I usually uh, tell them how incredibly handsome I am, which they all believe. <laughs> uh, I remember th- the only time it's even been mildly disruptive was when somebody brought a guide horse. We've got our share of guide dogs, which are, you know, very normal. We saw a little guide dog. Remember not to pet it, it's working dog. But we've never had a guide horse, which was really something. And it, I mean, I have never been upstaged the way I was by that miniature horse sitting in the front row. So uh, I, if there's other people out there who use uh, guide horses, that's great. I envy you. But if you do come to the show, sit in the back just so people remember to look at us and not your amazing, adorable horse. <laughs> I love it. Um, next question is from Diane Scalzi in, in uh, St. Clair Shores, Michigan. And Diane wants to know, she's wondering if the panelists write their own stories for the Bluff the Listeners game. Yes, they do. Uh, our, our panelists don't know what we're going to ask them. That's sometimes obvious as they flail around for an answer. We, we tried once uh, years ago letting them know what we were going to ask them so that they could prepare their very funny answers. And that actually kind of hurt the show. Part of what it makes our show good is that it is genuinely spontaneous and, and mostly improvised. However, the exception to that is, as you apparently intuited, the bluff games. When we ask the panelists to tell three stories, one of which is real, and those, they do write themselves. What we do is the day before the show is taped, when we, the staff, have selected what story we want to make the, the centerpiece of that. We let them know. We say, hey, this story is going to be uh, X. This is the real story. Our theme is Y. So write a fake story about that theme. And then they submit them to us. Sometimes we do a light edit and then they deliver them. So what you're hearing, and that, that I think is part of the fun for the panelists, is that's an aspect where they get to actually prepare and, and perform something briefly for the audience, uh, as opposed to the rest of the general chaos. Right. Now we have a question from Damien Pickering from Austin, Texas. And Damien says, I've been listening to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me since the beginning. The show is by far my favorite way of keeping up with the news. My question is borrowed from another of my favorite podcasts, Make Me Smart with Kai Rosdale and Molly Wood. The Make Me Smart question is, what is something you thought you knew that you later found out you were wrong that you later found out you were wrong about i'd like to know based on your experience working with blind people what is a belief you once held about blindness that later changed as a result of your experience you know that's a good question and i've addressed it a little bit um when i was growing up and for most of my adult life i simply didn't have a lot of contact with blind people uh, just by coincidence. I mean, it's not like I avoided them. It just, for example, there was there were no visually impaired students in my high school. For example, we did have, uh, by the way, deaf students. We became a our, our high school had a program for, for for deaf students, which was really interesting, and I got to meet some of them. But be that as it may, so I think looking back on it, without a lot of personal experience, and obviously nobody in my immediate family, nobody in my immediate family. Um, I probably had this image that's more or less created in the media in which blind people tend to be sort of 
semi-spiritual. You know, there's this, there's this trope and legend and myth of like Teresius, the blind seer. Blind people can see things, if you will, that, that sighted people can't. They have vision, they have wisdom, you know. And we can all think of like tropes and cliches like that from, uh, from popular culture. In addition to the, you know, Mr. Magoo style mockery. And I can't say I bought into that, but I will say again that spending time with visually impaired people, blind people, usually but not exclusively in the marathon, made me realize that no, they're just people. They're just people who, for whatever reason of accident or birth or illness, lost their sight. And, you know, they're coping with it as best they can. And they're utterly normal in every other respect, except for the fact that they can't see, um, which means they often can't drive cars and stuff like that. <laughs> and, uh, and and I don't know if that's like a revelation. I don't know if that's like, you know, the sort of thing that, you know, the day I learned that, you know, they're just like the rest of us. But I, I, I do think that, um, in, in, and, and by virtue of this, let, let me put it this way. I've become friendly with a number of people with various disabilities. And the one thing I know bothers them most of all, and this is true of Eric Manser as well, who is a blind runner who I've guided a couple times, is, is one of the things that they're most concerned with is prejudgments. People look at a person who is blind or otherwise disabled and thinks that they are, by virtue of their disability or their appearance, whatever it may be, uh, they're, they're stupid or, um, you know, to use an old word, retarded in some way, or in the other direction, particularly wise or particularly soulful, whatever. No, <laughs> they're just people who have the same struggles and advantages and disadvantages that the rest of us do. Again, I don't know if that's a huge revelation, but I, I do think that it's the sort of thing that, uh, I, I do think that the sort of, sort of thing that I know my disabled friends would want everyone else to know that they're exactly the same as anybody else with a couple of physical difficulties. That's it. And finally, we hear from Peter Altschul from Columbia, Missouri. And how has your work making current event geeks feel better about themselves influenced your work assisting visually impaired runners? You know, I've never really thought about it, but there is a, a kind of parallel between my coming to guide blind runners and my understanding of what I do for a living. And let me, let me see if I can explain that. Excuse me. And in order to explain it, you should know that when I started my career, I was a writer, a playwright specifically, and I had very elaborate ideas of my effect in the world. I was going to speak truth to power. I was going to be one of those august people who had wisdom that everybody else had to pay attention to. And I imagined myself making differences on a large scale in the way that a lot of young, arrogant people do. And instead, uh, as I described, I stumbled into this, this job, which ended up being my career, and God helped me my legacy. And for a while, early years, I kind of struggled with that. Uh, I was like, well, this is, I didn't realize that my career would be making fart jokes on the radio. I thought I'd be telling important truths to the American people through my art. But then I began talking on a regular basis to people who listen to and enjoy our show. Usually, after we, we started doing our show in front of a live audience every week in 2005. So every week, we'd stick around and talk to people. So every week, I got to talk directly, one-on-one, -on -one, if briefly, to people who listen to our show. And many of them told me how much it meant to them. And some of them told me specifically that it helped them get through an illness or the death of a loved one 
mm-hmm. or just depression. Um, sometimes they told me it helped them do really boring tasks that they needed to accomplish, like sanding their boat, you know. And as everybody shared with me the specific positive effect, whatever it may be, on their lives that our silly hour a week did, I began to realize that that's far more important than changing the world through art or becoming famous or God knows wealthy, um, you know, by writing whatever, a hit thing that becomes very, very popular. The fact that our little radio show actually helped individuals, people I met, people whose hands I shook, get through their lives just a little bit easier, just a little bit. You know, we weren't like changing the world. We weren't steering the ship of state, but we were just making a person's life better for an hour, a week. Um, I'll tell you the best story about that. And then maybe, and then, and which was kind of is, is, is sort of represents what I mean. We got a letter one day, actual letters. I remember as opposed to an email from a woman who told us this story that her partner, another woman, uh, this was, I think before uh, gay marriage was legally nationwide uh, had become very, very, very ill with some head trauma, infection, encephalitis, something like that. And it had put her in a coma and the doctor said to the woman writing us, she said, your partner is, we've done everything we can for her medically. And so whether or not she recovers from this is really in a weird way up to her. She's on the border between life and death. And if you would like her to come back to the side of the living, you should probably give her an incentive, bring her something that she likes, bring her something that would make her deep inside her you know, walled off brain at this moment, want to come back to consciousness. And so the letter writer told us they brought in a radio, whatever the technology was at that particular moment, and played multiple episodes of her favorite radio show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And she woke up. And we were, of course, amazingly thrilled and, um, and wrote back and were like, oh, my God. And it just so happens we were doing a show live at the city where they lived. I can't remember where it was exactly. So we invited them backstage. We met them. And there they were. There's the person who wrote the letter. And there's her partner. And she's healthy. And she's great. And it was either the most gratifying possible news of an effect we have on a human life or the most incredibly elaborate scam to get free tickets to a radio show ever executed. And in either case, I'm very happy with it because either we actually helped save the life of someone's loved one, or we inspired somebody to go to an extraordinary length to come up with a fake story to get free tickets so they could see our show. Either is good, but really that's the kind of effect that I am proud of having, not, you know, changing the national conversation, not becoming a celebrity to the extent that I am one, but just like, you know, as I said earlier, in terms of guiding blind people, just helping people one-on-one. It's a good thing. Good way to spend your time. Peter, what a fabulous story. Thank you so much. I, I, as, as you kind of went through the conversation here this evening, it made me think of an area that we're having a pretty active conversation right now within the American Council of Blind. And that's really the use of the word blind in the media, in our public figures, in our political figures. And you're, you know, in a position to be an influencer here. And I know you you understand and study language, but we see a lot of people use blind in a way that, you know, it, it implies uh, simple or lack of understanding or lack of maturity or falling down drunk or whatever it might be. But it, it seems like blind's an easy go-to word right now, um, mostly with a negative connotation to it. So have you observed that? And do you have any thoughts for us on how to 
change that discourse and, and have that dialogue with, with our community and with the media? That's, you know, I'll say this. Uh, it's certainly something I'm aware of because of my friendships with a bunch of blind people and visually impaired people. But one of the things that I think has happened for the better in a time when a lot of things seem to be going negative is more and more people have been speaking up about the way, for lack of a better word, the discourse makes them feel. Um, and people have responded eventually positively. What's, what, what doesn't seem to work is to say to somebody, you're not allowed to say that. That's offensive. Yeah. People get defensive and they get, no, I can say people have always said that. What do you mean? Blind has always meant this. Why are you giving me grief about it? I didn't mean anything bad. People tend to be very defensive and react, reactive when they're told they've done something offensive. What does seem to help is when people themselves speak up and speak out with confidence and with a right to express their feelings about how it makes them feel. You know, when you refer to somebody who's doing something stupid as just being blind, well, that makes blind people feel bad. And if the more people who come out and say that in a, in a personal way, I think, I think based on history, given some of the language that we as a, as a society have put aside, I mean, for example, one of the things I've noticed, excuse me, is that in baseball, there's been a subtle but small change. We used to have a disabled list. Now we have an injured list. And that's right. a yeah. response to disabled people saying, hey, you know, you're, you're using that term as like a bad thing. Oh, they're dis- on the disabled list. They can't play. You know, we disabled people can do a lot of things. Maybe you should change that word. And they did. And there's no loss to baseball. Injured is a much better word. But that happened because the disabled community let their feelings known. And I, I, I do think that that is the way forward. That one of the things that, in just the same way that we human beings don't react well to being told that we have done something wrong, we react better when we're told that something we've done has caused hurt. We don't like that, most of us. I mean, what kind of person enjoys hurting other people or making them miserable or making them sad? So I think that the community... Oh, sorry, I um, I think the community, the work that'll be done will be done that way. If just speaking up and saying, you know, when you talk that way, when those terms are used, this is how it makes us feel, people who live with blindness every day. And I imagine, yes, there'll always be pushback, but that's how change happens. Change happens. I mean, you know, we, we've been coming back to the same theme over and over again without meaning to, which is that the most meaningful interactions that I've had in my life are one-on-one. So once again, to be told, oh, I, you know, I'm just doing the, the wrong thing because you can't talk that way anymore. That's one thing. To have a person actually say to me, you know, when you said that, it really hurt me. It's something I deal with all the time to hear people like you who I admire, you know, say those things. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you a specific example. I've become, um, I've become friends with, via the Achilles, uh, with a guy named John Young, who's a short person, a small person, a little person, I believe, excuse me. And it, I found out from him that the term midget is really offensive to that community. I didn't know that. I used the word without knowing that it made people, uh, little people feel bad. So now I don't use it anymore because I, I don't worry about, you know, the political correctness issue or being censored. I worry about the fact that my friend John hears me use that word and feels bad. I don't want John to feel bad. So I don't use the word. And I think that that's, um, that's how we're going to make progress to appeal not so much to people's conscience, but to the fact that nobody wants to be hurtful. I think, I hope. 
thank you so much for your talk with us this evening. It really was absolutely sensational. I thank you so much for taking so much time out of your really busy schedule to be with us this evening. And your points were so poignant and they really, I think, made us think. And I I just can't say enough uh, how much we, the American Council of Blind, appreciate your time with us this evening. It was just a treat. It was wonderful. And we hope we continue this relationship well into the future. So once again, everybody, big round of applause for Peter Sagal from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Way. We've got to give Peter a big hip, hip, hooray. Thank you so much, Peter. Wow. Sensational. And now, yeah, we've got to keep the good times rolling. Who would like to win some money? I know I would. And so we have come to that time where it's time to find out who our ACB Braille Form raffle drawing winners will be for this year. I know raffle man Alan Peterson sold a lot of tickets in North Dakota, so there may be some winners from that state. But here we go. I'd like to introduce to you our ACB treasurer from Talladega, Alabama, David Trott, and our chief financial officer, Nancy Marks Becker from Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, to conduct tonight's ACB Braille Forum Drawing. David and Nancy, take it away. Hey, you guys, while we're waiting for David to show up, I'll let you know that I have been churning my box all evening long so that we have a good mix of um, raffle tickets. So if you bought it first, you're not at the bottom. And if you bought it last, you're not at the top. <laughs> let me churn a little bit. And I know we've got David there now. I heard him. I'm here. In. Yes, I am. I'm I'm at a banquet that we're having hot dogs, chips, and dip. I won't go through the drinks. I don't want to get anybody rushing down here. But uh, we got about thirty-five or forty people here. So, uh, and they're all excited about ACB 60th birthday and our upcoming alumni convention this weekend. So, okay, are we ready, David? We are ready. So the first one I'm going to draw for is the five thousand. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, and <coughs> which amount is the next amount I'm going to draw for? 1000 Okay. So, t- Nancy, tell us what you're doing with those tickets as you draw them. I'm writing the dollar amount down that they want. Okay. She's looking for my name because I agreed to split with her. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, David is how much? $500. One more turn take this one. Whoops. Take this one out. Okay. All right. Now, if you will read those in reverse order, 500, 1,000, and 5,000. I will. Let me put my headset on so you can hear me better. Oh, you sound good. Do I really? Oh, you sound yeah. really good. So the $500 winner is Jennifer Holloway from Alamedita. California. All right. Congratulations. $1,000 winner is Anthony Lewis. Congratulations, Anthony. Jennifer Holloway won the 500, and Anthony Lewis won the 1,000. 
And now for the moment we have all been waiting for five thousand. Oh, where, where is An- where is Anthony Lewis from? Does do we know? Yeah, uh, let me look. Let me look. It does not say on the ticket. We're selling so fast this afternoon. We didn't have time to write address. <laughs> Anthony Lewis. Exact same. Exact same place. Alameda, California. Wow. Okay. California is on a hot streak. How about moving that yeah. towards Florida here, Nancy? Well, yeah, you stop right before you get there. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that I sold the last ticket tonight to this person. Oh. And I think he's going to share it with somebody else in his household, but it's Glenn McCulley. In Seattle, oh, Washington. Oh, yeah. congratulations, Glenn. Yeah. Congratulations to all three of these winners. But I'd like to say more importantly, thank you to everybody who has donated through the raffle tickets to ACT. It has been phenomenal this year. It has, and we certainly appreciate everybody. And did we have any tickets at all left, Nancy? Every single ticket was sold. Oh, I'm sorry, folks. I won't be able to run a discount ticket today or tomorrow, but uh, maybe next year. <laughs> okay, buddy, that was great, and we do thank you for your participation. Dan, I'm going to leave it with you, buddy. All right. Thank you, David, and thank you, Nancy, and uh, congratulations to uh, our three big winners this evening, all from the West Coast. All right. Congratulations. And next, uh, we are going to welcome our uh ACB convention chair from St. Paul, uh, Minnesota, to share some door prizes. So, Janet Dickelman, take it away. Hello, hello. Now, these are some really good door prizes. None of them are worth $5,000, but they are some really great door prizes that I was asked to hold off for the banquet. So, I have done that. And I am going to, the first one I'm going to draw for is a hundred dollars from Washington Council of the Blind. Mm. And that goes to, oh my goodness. Now I want you to know I have nothing to do with these numbers, but this is one of my affiliate members, Abby Winters from, from Minneapolis, Minnesota. All right, Abby. So she gets a hundred dollars from uh, WCB. Thank you, WCB, for that great present, uh, door price. Then I have another one, which is, this is a very cool um, door price too. This is donated by Ira and by Anthony Corona of um, Sunday Edition. Hmm. And it is a set of Aftershocks open move um, headphones. And these are the bone conducting headphones so that your ears are free, so that you can hear what's going on. Um, at, the write-up says they're great for calling your favorite visual interpreting service, which, of course, would be Ira, and or from listening to your favorite ACB radio show, Sunday Edition. <laughs> and these have a six-hour battery life and also include 60 minutes of uh, Ira-free minutes. And the winner of the headphones is Marshall Lawrence from uh, Norman, Oklahoma. All right. Congratulations, Marshall. Marshall, you you enjoy those headphones. All right. Then ACB students donated 
a now I'm not, you know, a, a techie person, but I know this is a great prize because they sent me a link and it looks really cool. But an AC uh, Fire 10 tablet and that goes to Eric Brinkman of White Plains, New York. Right. So Congratulations, that, Eric. Thank you. Um, do you want me to do one more? I think so. Are we going to have any more chances? We're going to have prizes? a few for tomorrow. Free for, oh, maybe one yeah. more. I'll Janet, do, I'll we'll do, do one more and we'll have, we'll have some for tomorrow. Okay. okay. Ninette Liggetts of Westminster, Maryland. Oh, gets a $50 Uber gift certificate donated by Mike and Kathleen Duke. Oh, congratulations. Yes. So those are our door, our banquet door prize. And thank you to all the donors um, who supplied these wonderful door prizes. Well, thank you, Janet. And.
Good night, everybody. And once again, special thanks to Peter Siegel, Siegel for just a wonderful, uh, a wonderful speech. Thanks so much. Good night, all.